From American Public Media, this is King's Last March. I'm Stephen Smith. It has been 50 years since Martin Luther King Jr. was killed on the balcony of his hotel room in Memphis. 50 years ago, King wasn't supposed to be on that balcony. He wasn't even supposed to be in Memphis. But the reason he was there was fundamental to all that he held dear in the final year of his life. In spring 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. got diverted from his work on the Poor People's Campaign by a garbage strike in Tennessee. The city hall this afternoon and demanded Mayor Henry Loeb hear their grievances. The workers are striking for higher pay. Many receive only the federal minimum wage. Black sanitation workers were protesting against miserable working conditions. For years, they carried garbage from backyard trash cans in round steel tubs on their heads. Many tubs leaked. The men drank water from a cooler on the truck because they weren't allowed to stop for refreshment. Sometimes they found maggots in their drinking cups. They were persistently mistreated. The Reverend James Lawson led a local civil rights movement that supported the striking trash collectors. They were persistently called racist names by their white supervisors. They were often called boy. They had no way to work for promotion and they were treated as uh, disposable laborers. They had no pensions, no vacations. They had nothing, and if they got hurt, then they were just out of a job. Historian Michael Honey says the garbage workers put up with the wretched conditions until 1968, when two of their own suffered a gruesome accident. In Memphis, black trash haulers were not allowed to ride in the truck's cab with white workers. So when it rained, they often climbed in the back where the garbage cans got emptied. In back was also where the trash got crushed by a powerful blade. On February 1st, Echol Cole and Robert Walker, 36 and 30 years old, were riding in the back and the mechanism went off and went into action. The driver stopped the truck, but by the time he got out of the truck, the packing mechanism had grabbed them and mashed them just like garbage and they were killed instantly. Black workers decided to strike, but city officials refused to bargain with them. And when peaceful demonstrators marched to City Hall, police attacked them with tear gas and billy clubs. A month into the strike, James Lawson asked King to come to Memphis to boost morale. King arrived on March 18, 1968, and spoke to a massive crowd at the Mason Temple, a Pentecostal church. Now let me say a word to those of you who are on strike. You've been out now for a number of days, but don't despair. King told the workers to hold on, even though the white residents of Memphis seemed to be ignoring their struggle. King said it was like a Bible story. Jesus reminded us in a magnificent parable one day that a man went to hell because he didn't see the poor, his name was Dives. Dives went to hell for ignoring a beggar named Lazarus. And I come by here to say that America too is going to hell if she doesn't use her wealth. America does not use her vast resources of wealth to end poverty and make it possible for all of God's children to have the basic necessities of life 
she too will go to hell. At first, King didn't plan to do more in Memphis than give this speech. In fact, his staff at the SCLC didn't want him to go at all. Andrew Young ran the organization's daily operations. Young feared that Memphis would be a troublesome detour on the road to the SCLC's Poor People's March in Washington. We were stretched awful thin, uh, and we were doing an awful lot. Uh, And yet people wanted him to be everywhere and to do everything. But we had very little money and very little trained staff to help do it. King understood from the beginning that it was it was kind of like the story of the of the Good Samaritan. Historian Claiborne Carson. If he failed to stop and help this campaign of sanitation workers in Memphis, then he would be like the priest who walked by the, the person on the roadside who needed help. Instead, he wanted to be the Good Samaritan who went to Memphis and helped those who were desperately in need of outside help and attention. Thing for you to do is stay together. Say to everybody in this community that you're going to stick it out to the end until every demand is met and that you're going to say we ain't going to let nobody turn us around. King's visit to Memphis lifted morale among the strikers and their supporters. But it was also a tonic for King. At the time, King was struggling to recruit people for the Washington March, and his popularity seemed to be ebbing. But the Mason Temple was one of the largest gathering places for black people in the South, and as many as 14,000 packed the place to hear King speak. Uh, You know what? You may have to escalate the struggle a bit. Historian Michael Honey. At the end of this speech, King is trying to find an ending to his speech. He hesitates for a minute, and then he says... I tell you what you ought to do, and you're together here enough to do it. In a few days, you ought to get together and just have a general work stoppage in the city of Memphis. You'll hear then bedlam, uh, just people shouting and yelling, and it goes on for several minutes like he'd hit a home run. And the reason for this is that Black people in Memphis had always done most of the labor, the maids, the people on the waterfront, the railroads, and they knew that if they all stopped work on a given day, they could close the city down. And you let that day come. Not a Negro in this city will go to any job downtown. And there haven't been very many general strikes in American labor history, and none in the civil rights Uh, movement era. So this would have been a tremendous high watermark for the movement. King promised the strikers in Memphis he would come back soon and help reach that high watermark. Instead, when he returned, King would endure one of the lowest days of his civil rights career. Dr. Martin Luther King's massive downtown march on Memphis is now underway. Several thousand Negroes are marching toward City Hall at this time. March 28, 1968. King is back in Memphis. This time he's accompanied by just two of his staffers from the SCLC. Many of the demonstrators are carrying the sign, I am a man. They stretch out for several blocks. Police are on hand with about 600 officers. Almost the entire force is standing by here in case any trouble might break out. Though King steps up to lead the protest march, he's counting on local organizers to keep the demonstration orderly. Michael Honey says, 
King is obviously uneasy as he's pushed along by the crowd. You can see in the photography of the march that Dr. King is visibly exhausted. His head is falling from side to side. He looks dazed. He looks apprehensive. He's not feeling like he's really in control of the situation, and he really isn't. Chaos has just broken out downtown. Chaos has just broken out downtown. All right, Negro youth are smashing windows. The violence begins in the crowd behind King as he and the march leaders turn a corner into Memphis's main street. Local organizer James Lawson was with King. I see up here on Main Street a phalanx of police in riot gear across the street. That sound you just heard was the sound of a tear gas fired by a police officer in an attempt to thwart this unruly demonstration. Lawson says he saw a dozen or so young people breaking storefront windows, but the riot police weren't interested in them. And I point up the street and they say, they're going to break the march up. Police have formed a cordon across Main Street at this time in an attempt to at least calm the demonstration, which has gotten completely out of hand. The Negro youths are shouting at this time, go, go. James Lawson's response was, Martin, they're coming for you, the police. Secondly, you can't be in the position of leading a march that turns into violence. So Lawson got him out of the march, and King protested because he knew that people would say he ran and so forth, which the news media did say. Was that Martin Luther King? He has, de- he has deserted the march. He has left the march. And Martin Luther King has left the march. We're waiting on the rest of the our... The violence continued for hours as peaceful marchers got caught up in the same police counterattack as looters. One teenager was shot to death. Dozens of protesters were injured and nearly 300 black people arrested. Stores in the black section of town got looted and burned. Martin Luther King was despondent. He crawled into bed at his Memphis hotel with his clothes on, trying to sort out what had gone wrong and what to do next. He spent the evening with SCLC staff who had hurried to Memphis. Never had I seen him so upset and disturbed. Ralph Abernathy was King's second-in-command at the SCLC. Abernathy was interviewed in the late 1980s. Dr. King was heartbroken because he didn't want to lead a violent march. He wanted his record to be clear. And he said to me, why don't we just step aside and uh, let the violent forces run their course? Because they will soon run out. And I said to him, no, Martin, uh, we will remain nonviolent and we will be actively engaged in nonviolent activities because violence is not the way. We cannot ever be free with violence. King talked and fretted late into the night. The next morning, he held a press conference, hoping to control the damage to his reputation and to his plans for the Poor People's Campaign. Reporters challenged King on whether he could keep the Washington demonstration peaceful. This gentleman. How do you turn this on and off? You suggest people of a violent nature can suddenly be made nonviolent. Well, you must remember that most Negroes have never accepted philosophical credo nonviolence. Uh, but most Negroes are willing to follow tactical nonviolence. I saw this in Chicago when we were working there. 
Uh, we had Blackstone Rangers marching with us, the worst gang in Chicago. They never retaliated with violence. Now, certainly they believed in violence, but they at least accepted tactical nonviolence <coughs> for particular demonstrations and an organized thrust. King said that at the Memphis March, local organizers had failed to make sure that young black militants accepted tactical nonviolence. But King's critics leapt on the disastrous march as a sign of his fading authority. The worst part of it was that King had never led a demonstration in which violence broke out among his followers. Michael Honey. And he knew also that the FBI and the news media now would go on the attack against him as a leader and against the Poor People's Campaign. All the national news media fed uh, releases by the FBI began to say King ran like a rabbit and uh, was scared, uh, and he set up the situation. Every place he goes, violence happens, then he claims to be a nonviolent leader. His um, ability to lead a march on Washington is clearly threatened. When he got home to Atlanta, King told his staff at the SCLC that there was no choice. He would have to return to Memphis. King said he had to prove he could lead a nonviolent demonstration in Memphis before moving on to Washington. Again, some on the staff objected, but King was adamant. Next time on King's Last March, his last days. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. King's Last March is a production of American Public Media and APM Reports. Support for King's Last March comes from the Olseth Family Foundation, working to improve community through support of the arts, education, the environment, and the underserved.